So welcome, welcome to our next podcast, our next episode of Building a World of Encounter, Not Confrontation. And today we're going to talk about hate, hate groups, and how people express hate in various environments, and particularly those who we've experienced and seen lately with more of the extremist version of demonstrations and hate that can lead into violence and other destruction. Um, we're really going to talk a lot about what is it like from the perspective of those who get involved in hate groups and how do we help those um, in hate groups see something different than their hate that they are experiencing and they're seeing right now. And uh, so today we're going to talk about an organization called Life After Hate and its executive director and one of its co-founders. Uh, but just to give you some statistics on hate crimes and violence related to hate crimes, you know, the majority of violence and hate crimes actually do go unreported, which is surprising, but it's probably not unlike a lot of the other crimes that we see that are more personal, whether that's rape crimes or other types of um, crimes that simply go unreported. And there are some statistics that say that between 2008 and 2017, 71% of extremist related fatalities in the US were committed by the far right or white supremacist movements. And that is a statistic that it came out of the US Department of Justice and the Anti-Defamation League um, Center on Extremism that's reported on the website for Life After Hate. And, and that's a real interesting and challenging topic here of how do we deal with all of these things and all of this, this mentality and all of this frustration. And um, the organization Life After Hate um, has actually helped just since the attacks in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, over 360 individuals, families and inmates that are challenged with dealing with their extremist and hateful thoughts and, and, and their groups. And so Life After Hate has actually several programs to help folks in those environments um, with programs like Exit USA to support individuals looking to leave racism and violence uh, against violent extremist network, which is a whole network um, to help an ongoing struggle to tackle violent extremists. Um, Farmers Anonymous, which is a group of men and women who um, have been previously or are working to help those who are addicted to a criminal or drug or alcoholic lifestyles that can tend to um, be supporting of a, a life of hate. And there is also the group called the Strong Cities Network, which is uh, launched by the United Nations in September of 15 for uh, mayors um, and other government and policymakers to help build community and uh, counter violent extremists in all its forms. And so this is a really uh, important topic and it's a, a population that a lot of people like to have a lot of um, preconceived notions about and viewing as evil and hateful hearts and all of that. And, you know, the reality is that most of the people involved in hate groups and with violence and extremism actually have some of their own traumas that they are now expressing through this violence. And so we want to be able to see everybody as a human and see everybody's traumas with compassion, not that that's ever a condone or, or a, um, an acceptance of violence, but we want to reach under the covers and actually see what's really going on. And that's part of what building a world of encounter, not confrontation is about. Uh, 
And so today I really am just so pleased and tickled that we have um, Sammy Rangel, who is a part of the Life After Hate. He was one of the co-founders and is now its executive directors. And, and Sammy has an autobiography called Four Bears, The Myths of Forgiveness that chronicle his own life of physical and sexual abuse that led him down a path of hate and hate groups and violence with extremism, um, serving many years in prison and how he recovered from that and how he now works to help others get out of that environment and change their mindsets. He is now uh, has a master in social worker uh, in social work with a clinical substance abuse counselor certification, and um, he also graduated kuma, summa cum laude with that MSW degree from Loyola University. Uh, he has been a panelist at the Summit Against Violent Extremism in Dublin, Ireland, and he is a recipient of the United Nations Humanitarian Award for global from the Global Hope Foundation. So, Sammy, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Thank you for that um, that wonderful introduction. I would I would just clarify. So, Life After Hate only has one program, which is the Exit USA program, which is the, where we do direct service working with families and individuals looking to get assistance with leaving these groups. Um, Formers Anonymous is something that I've started on my own, but that I think really blends in with uh, the mission of Life After Hate. And certainly um, uh, we have members from that, you know, that segment of our country in that group, but it's, it's a much broader audience that attends that. Um, and then our affiliation with the Strong Cities Network is, is not our program, but we are, we are um, you know, happy to be a part of that initiative put on by that organization. Fantastic. I appreciate those clarifications. You're trying not to take credit where credit's not due, right? Correct. correct. <laughs> and and while, while, I, while I received the award for the humanitarian uh, efforts of Life After Hate, it really recognized our whole organization for the work that we're doing. And, and rightly so, because I think what you guys are doing is, is definitely fantastic. Um, so if you could start us off with a little bit about more of your mission um, and your background and how you got into this. Sure. Um, you know, so our mission is, is really just trying to create a safe place for everyone, you know, and a world where we can all live in and not have to be worried about type of extremist acts based on race and other, and other perceived differences that often lead people to hate. Um, it, I am kind of unique in the organization where, whereas all the other co-founders are um, men and women who once used to be uh, white supremacists here in the States themselves. Um, I obviously was not a white supremacist. I, was a, I grew up in the city of Chicago and some of its suburbs throughout my life and was a gang member. And I actually survived a race riot um, at the age of 17 fighting white supremacists when I was locked up in a prison in Southern Illinois. And in that riot, um, there were several things that kind of led to my, what I would call radicalization, which was, it's, it is, and, and this is where it gets interesting because uh, there are some groups or people out there that want to lump the type of violence that we see, and, you know, maybe like through gangs into extremism, but it, it's quite different. Uh, I was a gang member when I, when I survived this race riot and um, what happened to me after that 
is when things got bad, <laughs> if, you, if you can imagine, right? And so um, in this race ride, I saw a couple of things. I saw, I saw the guards directly protecting uh, the white supremacists in the riot. And we, they were outnumbered the rest of the minorities in that prison, probably two or three to one. It, they had, they had, um, they had the numbers as far as we, you know, as far as prisons go. Um, two, uh, a black man was shot trying to save my life. Um, I was cornered by about thirty armed white supremacists. I myself was armed. Uh, the black male um, that was shot and killed was not armed. Uh, and was standing right next to me. Um, and you might think, well, that was a single incident, you know, maybe that's just how it turned out. Well, we witnessed this same type of protection of white supremacists and even attacks against minorities by the, by the administration go on for nine more months. So there are plenty of incidences after that to kind of reinforce uh, this experience that I had. Um, and then while I was in, sec and, I, and I had actually, it was because of that race riot that I actually got notoriety within my own group um, because I, I took part in taking over a cell hall, uh, control of a cell hall. I attacked a warden um, and some of the guards and to get control. And, and that was, the reason I did that um, was because when that, when that black male was shot, um, the warden had told us that he was not gonna be able to get medical attention um, because the, uh, the it was a, a, pr a prison-wide riot. And so I knew that this man had just been shot trying to save me. And so um, I begged for his life. And they were very indifferent uh, and callous about it. And, um, and so I, I attacked the warden, and which started the whole fight to take over the cell hall. And eventually we made it, we forced our way to the inmate hospital. Um, but by that time, that gentleman had died. Uh, and then I spent the next 28 months of my life in segregation, um, in what would be called administrative segregation, which is uh, as, a, as a special threat category, you can be held with little to no due process for indefinite periods of time in segregation. And while I was in the hole, I was tortured. I watched other inmates be tortured. Um, I would, you have to go through this whole extensive process to get, like, they have to offer you recreation. Um, and you have to get strip searched, you turn around, cough, they go through your clothes, they wand you, you're completely, you're completely, you know, like controlled by the guard all the way through until you get outside. And then when you get to the last gate out, you're searched again. Um, and so what they were doing was like making sure that none of the blacks or Hispanics were carrying weapons, but allowing the white supremacists to go on that same enclosed rec yard, all armed uh, and throwing you, you know, basically to the wolves. And a lot of times when you, when you go, when you get put onto the yard, you could still be handcuffed. Um, and so if the inmates chose to attack you while you're still handcuffed, you, you essentially be um, disarmed. I mean, wow. you know, un, un, you wouldn't be able to protect yourself. I mean, mm -hmm. um, so now I, that is one part that kind of what you could see would naturally affect somebody's mentality. But then I was surrounded by men and women or not men, women, by men who, who were strictly like law, you know, like anti-law enforcement, anti-government, anti-white. Um, 
And it was probably because of incidences like this, not making any excuses, but attaching reason to why their mentality. I think they had witnessed a number of things such as I had been, but they were helping me interpret what this was about. And then they fed me this ideology around government, how government corruption um, and how government corruption was really controlled by white supremacists. Um, and that white, white supremacy was complicit in the type of oppression uh, that men and women um, you know, from black and Hispanic communities were facing every day. And so they started giving meaning and helping me develop and define meaning to my personal experiences, which now based on these new definitions, these new explanations, I could go backwards in my life and attach that new definition to previous experiences that kind of validated the ideology of what they were saying. And you know, it made sense, it made sense. And at that time I felt like I was being enlightened to a perspective that very few people would have. I felt that a lot of the people, including my own family were asleep you know, um, in these issues. And I actually walked out of that prison calling myself a revolutionist um, because that's what it was housed under. And um, by the time I walked out of that prison, almost directly from the hole after 28 months, after surviving a race riot, after ongoing fighting, um, it wouldn't be surprised that within two weeks, I found myself in a violent encounter after my release where people were hurt. Uh, and then eventually, seven months later, rearrested for violent gun crimes, which if they had paid closer attention, would have probably been labeled under today's standards as hate crimes, um, because my crimes were against law enforcement and other, and other whites. Um, so you can kind of see how I ended up here, but you're, you're wondering, you know, well, how would a, a group of ex-white supremacists partner up with somebody like Sammy? Well, we're all heading the same direction today, mm -hmm. which is one, to dispel the myths that a lot of currents and formers experience right now because of these experiences that we've had, to, to undo some of the damage, if at all possible, in any way, shape, or form, uh, as a part of our, through our service work. We even, and we even consider running this organization as a part of our service work. You know, this is uh, one of our board members recently told us, you know, like, what you're doing is service work. This is a, this is a service to the country. Um, you know, we are concerned about the country's mental health and well-being at this point. And we recognize that a lot of the damage that we've done is still being lived out and played out in the current uh, conditions and, and times. Um, and so, you know, here we are, right? And we felt that as a group, you mentioned the Summit Against Violent Extremism in Dublin. Well, that's where we met for the first time as a complete group. And we had a sense. We said, you know, we, we all kind of went through our change process alone. Um, I, went, I definitely went through mine alone. Um, there was very few, if anyone, who could understand the depth of what I was coming out of. Uh, and in fact, I was going to self-help groups all over the place. And um, I was basically told many times, like, your story is too intense for us. Mm. Like, that's not why we come together. Wow. You know, like we're, we're here for this and you're here for that. And, and so I was grateful to have a place of support. So I, 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 you know, went in Rome, right? And so I stopped talking about my experiences and was just trying to be around people who were trying to change, you know? And so I, I felt very lonely. And, and when I shared that story, a lot of our peers or the other co-founders felt exactly the same. Like, man, we were on this island of change. Like there was no one around. And then that organically led to, it would be nice. It would have been nice 
if I had known even one of you in that process. And then that, that's where the, the, the concept for creating a, some sort of organization to, to be able to assist people, the beacon, right? The lighthouse, where if you're, if you're in this point where you really are thinking about um, doing something different with your life, you don't got to do it alone. And that, whether it's 12-step groups or whether it's life after hate, the, the genius is the fact that it's a group, right? That, it, that it's a group of us doing this together because it, you, you really can't expect people to do this alone. Um, and so many things have accelerated since our days have changed that make it even harder. Mm-hmm. Social media and trolling and outing people gives you a national stage now to be embarrassed and harassed. You know, like it's very difficult. There are different circumstances today, but the dynamics are most, mostly the same in which no one should have to do this alone. Um, you can save a lot of trial and error by partnering smart with the right people who can help you along in this process. People who can see further down your road than you can, that you can trust. Yeah. And, and we're not just formers doing this work. We, we've all spent years developing ourselves professionally and personally. We're not just people who got out and thought we had what it took. We, we have spent years in school, years in therapy, years you know volunteering, listening, making amends, providing service work, you know, doing what we can to reconcile for our wrongs and then jumping into the fray to say, I think we have something that can be helpful or useful for someone. I think that's a, a, an incredible story. And we only got a snippet, probably the tip of the iceberg of your story. And having listened to your TED talk, I know it's, you know, just the, the tip of the pin. Sure. Um, and you know, you mentioned social media, and I think, like you said, it's different today, not because mindsets are so different, but because the environments are so different. You know, you can be bombarded with things that bolster your hate 24-7 with the social media and the web and all of that. So it is something that can keep people at such a high intensity level of anger and hatred that it is um, more challenging to to come down from and it, it certainly helps bolster now you could look at it from the other side maybe there are other things that you can help but you've got to choose to want to go in that direction like yourself and some of your co-founders have which i think is just amazing it's tr- truly to me a testament that you know your spirit was calling to you during all of this um but you know the the fact that you are in the this camp from extremism and you're partnering with people from this camp of the extremism uh, that to me is I, I think a perfect illustration of how not only are they both the, both ends um, both dealing with extremist views and hatred and anger but you know now I'd love to hear your description of how you are able to see um, you know, either whether there was common ground or how you could see the each other differently or your perspectives differently now that you are actually partnering in this. Um, what were some of the most um, misconceptions that you had about them and they had about your, your side perspectives? I think I was really lucky uh, in the fact that, well, you know, um, while I'm not perfect, I'm not trying to say that, I, my development and my, my trajectory of change um, led me down a path that made me unique to everyone else in the organization today. Um, I'm the only one uh, at, 
in the organization who had any sort of uh, nonprofit or uh, direct service um, experience. So no one else was in the clinical field like I was. No one else was a social worker. No one else had done direct service work. Um, and I'm not talking about like layman approach, lamp post approach. Like I've been there, done that. So I'm going to proselytize to you. No, I'm talking about like real development. And so my, that helped me understand the population they were working with. Now I, I can tell you, I did not know much while I grew up around white supremacy and experienced that firsthand and had fought it firsthand. I didn't know much about it as a population that I was providing direct service to. But the more I heard from Life After Hate and its other um, co-founders made me realize that the same issues that I faced and that the clients that I was working with from, from very different backgrounds sounded very similar to the backgrounds of these men and women who were on the white, white supremacy side of things, right? And I started to, to recognize that there was some transfer value from the work that I was doing that could probably benefit this side of things, right? Because when you get past, when you get past the ideologies, right? And I, so I was a hardcore gang member, became a gang leader, well known as a gang leader, um, one of the highest ranking gang members in Chicago from my gang. When, when, when I got into the field and I started working with the enemy, you know, people that were on the other side, and I even experienced this in prison, you realize that the differences between me and the enemy were, were to be honest, were almost non-existent beyond the flag and the, and the literature, but everything else was the same. And when I was in that, in that segregation for 28 months, I was, I was surrounded by two enemies. Um, I, did, I never made amends or made, made it good with the one guy. I actually attacked him and hurt him, and he ended up getting moved. He was a white supremacist. But on the other side was a, a kid from an opposite gang that we were rivals with. And we had put all our rivals aside with most of the gangs for the race riot. Like we had, if, it didn't matter who you were. It was, it was a race riot. So we put all the boundaries aside for, that were directly related to gangs and came together under race. But this kid that was next to me, his group had opted to stay out of the race riot. And so I, we weren't, and we weren't going to be friends because now you, you didn't help us during this time. You, you stayed out. So me and him fought for nine months. And I mean, we would argue every day. It was religious, right? It was part of our, just our routine. And then one day he asked me a question, you know, and it was, I, I don't even know where it came from. Nine months, he whispered it to me. He was like, why do you hate me so much? And I'm like, well, why do you hate me so much? And then we ended up becoming friends. And his story could have been my TED Talk. Like the talk I gave, his story was so identical to mine, right? And it was, it was, it was unreal to think that I could identify. That was my first time ever identifying in that way with someone who I hated. Um, now, I take that years later, and you realize that we're not so different beyond the surface when it comes to what ails us, what haunts us, what hurts us, um, you know, while I was a tough guy, just beneath the surface of that armor were intense feelings and emotions and wounds, right? Deep wounds mm -hmm. and scars. And, and I'm not saying everyone fits that, but there is a significant amount of people who do to make it something to take into consideration. 
Um, and even with the men and women who I, who I don't share a background like that with, some of them do come from what would appear to be, you know, a, a healthy nuclear family, you know, so to speak. Um, they do have real concerns. They have real feelings. They have real fears. And, it, and it's not for me to evaluate, one, their worthiness to take it serious or to evaluate the worthiness of their grievance. If it's their grievance, then that's what I should be paying attention to. It doesn't matter how far-fetched I think it is or valid it is. It, the only way to validate a person is to be able to demonstrate um, the capacity to listen to that person and to hear out their grievance and to validate that as their experience, that as their experience, that is a, a very tough experience to have to live under, you know? And so um, the work that we're doing now, it wasn't hard for me to get behind what Life After Hate was doing because one, I've always worked with the toughest groups and populations as a social worker. I, I sex offenders, uh, child molesters, um, murderers, you know, uh, gang members, drug dealers, like that has been the, for the last 20 plus years, that is all I've worked with. And now that I'm working with white supremacists, I, I have the tolerance and, I, and it does not intimidate me. Um, you know, I, of course, we want to be mindful and cautious and secure, but at the core of it, we're, we're not dealing with an anomaly. You know, we're not dealing with uh, somebody who's so different that we can't possibly understand them. What, what we're really doing is raising communities tolerance to work with this group. But it's not that we have to learn a whole new set of skill sets to be able to approach, right? To approach this space. Basic, basic listening skills, you know, uh, empathy, compassion is a person-centered uh, dynamic of your approach, right? Like these are the things that are effective with any group. It's, We've cut through butter with sex offenders and gang members and, and drug dealers using these same approaches. It works with this, it works the exact same, you know, and it has to come from a genuine place. It's not a tool that I pull out. It's a place within myself that I recognize needs to be a part of the tools that I use, mm -hmm. right? It's how I wield the sword, right? How I wield the pen um, in many ways. And so it, it, we, weren't, we weren't on different pages. At, at post change, we were all very alike. So it was not hard coming together. Yeah. We saw the humanity in each other. Mm -hmm. We cried when we heard each other's stories. We, you know, we we fight like regular people. Like we are, we are just the mm -hmm. same on this side. And so it wasn't hard coming together. They appreciated my experience, and that's why they brought me on as ED in 2017. And it was timely um, to start getting systems in place. We've had so much growth in the last two years just around our systems and our programming and our methodology, um, you know, that it, it was it was time. It was time to put those things into place. So I, it, for me, it wasn't, and I don't think they had biases either. I don't, on this side, like I, I think that we were, once you let go of that hate, hatefulness and you have to have been so far down to appreciate the openness today to recognize that this is just another person to love. Mm -hmm. Right. That's who I see standing before me is another person to love. And we feel the same way about these men and women who are stuck in these hateful lifestyles. There's you, you can only love them out of that. You can't, you can't, you can't do anything else with it. You know, love is really the only thing. And, and that doesn't mean anything goes, of course, there's boundaries and there's limits. Um, but when, when you are coming from a place where you don't have 
um, judgment, you know, leading your thoughts. And, and as you mentioned, ego, um, which I have a lot of opinions about when ego is not in the room, when you don't make it about yourself when you don't internalize and personalize what you're, what you're confronting, it gives you the tolerance to withstand the heat that these people bring with them, right? You, you're conditioned to be able to stand there with them. And that's what makes it unique for them to encounter us is that for once there's a place where they don't really have to justify or explain themselves to us. Um, we kind of understand. And I'm not suggesting that you have to, that the only, that the only type of impact you can expect to have is if you've been there and done that. No, we're, we're teaching people from very different walks of life how to engage in this space in, in, in a successful way like we are. But it does help in some cases on a very superficial level, if you ask me, but it, which is still critical of having been there and done that. Like that, that for them is an immediate trust factor. Mm-hmm. But eventually it turns into something else much deeper and more significant once they continue to engage with us. That might help them get in the door, but if that's all that we have between us, it would be a very short-lived relationship. Yeah. And so, you know, you're, we are very, you know, as, as um, antisocial personalities, we are very charismatic and very dynamic, but that is very shallow, right? And so you need something beyond that charisma to help a person change. And, and we, right now we see a lot of charismatic people, uh, you know, under the light, but they, without those skill sets of, of how to actually engage with people ethically, uh, professionally, a lot of damage can be done. And, you know, life after hate spends quite a bit of time cleaning up some of that damage, you know, yeah. because these people reached out to the wrong group or to somebody who's not even in the process of change themselves and found themselves kind of flailing in water, you know. It's one thing to want to pull somebody out of the water. It's another thing to be a lifeguard, you know, yeah. in, in, in that kind of sense. You know, something that um, you said that struck me uh, as, as critical that people understand is that regardless of what, quote, side somebody is on, when you peel it back, you find that their experiences and their wounds are very similar. And they just, you know, whatever the reason is, as they go into the, the aggressive and the extremist view, you know, if you're white, you go into white supremacist. If you are a person of color, you go into the, the opposite, you know, and you end up doing this blame game for part of the reason why you've experienced what you've experienced with your wounding. And, you know, I think um, that's, that's critical for people to understand. And, um, you know, I would love for you to say a little bit more that when you were back before you were in this social working and, and helping mode, you know, how did you view, um, what were the misconceptions that you had at that time about the white supremacists? And what do you think the white supremacist misconceptions were about um, the, the black lives and the person of color movement? So I, one is that you lump everyone into the group with the bad actors. The bad actors become the representation of a global narrative, right? And so uh, because I ran into, uh, you know, uh, a concentrated world of white supremacy in prison, and I saw those whites behaving both on the administrative side and on the prisoner side, behaving a certain way, what, what, where the radicalization process took me down was they're all bad mm-hmm. all whites all government all law enforcement right so there's a misconception right and it could, 
and it gets attached to, and you know, to be honest, it's prevalent, right? And, and in the environments, I, my family was from Texas. I have in the 60s, in the 50s, right? Like I have memories growing up in the 70s, watching my parents being attacked, which I now know were race, racial attacks, right? It's prevalent. It's, it's, so it's everywhere. It seems like it's everywhere. And so it becomes everywhere. It seems like it's everyone. So it becomes everyone, right? Like, and I think, um, you know, when you look at social media, the difference was in, in that prison riot was in 1992. I was surrounded by six or seven men who were pumping me with information every day for two and a half years. Today, what took two and a half years happens in a weekend. Mm -hmm. You can binge it on, on social media and digest all the content you need to become a white supremacist or anything else you're looking to do. But the problem is you think you're fishing out of the ocean when you're really fishing out of a bucket, maybe a cup. Yeah. And so you, you're taking down this rabbit hole and you're thinking you're seeing something from everywhere, but what you're seeing is something that you don't realize you've, you've indicated to the universe you want more of. And so the universe kind of funnels it into a very narrow corridor for you to consume all of the poison and, and misinformation or propaganda that you can. So that's, there's, so one, you think it's everyone. Two, you think it's everywhere, mm -hmm. right? And so now, because you've been tuned in to see that, now you're going to see it maybe even in places it doesn't exist. Exactly. It comes um, the lens that you put in your eye. But I want to talk about two things that you've said that have caught my attention, if it's, if it's okay to. Yeah, please. I think I related to this. A, a, a few sentences ago, um, you said that we choose to make a different choice. What we're teaching mental health professionals and law enforcement right now is that the community's response also plays a factor in the success or failure that someone has in making a decision to change. Um, I ran a reentry program for three years here in my hometown, and um, our preliminary study of the community found that the practices by the Department of Correction at the, at the supervision level, uh, probation and parole, community corrections, was a significant factor in the increases of recidivism. Mm. Right? Let that sink in for a second. <clears throat> and here's, here are some examples of that. Uh, and this is what you would call a barrier. So you have three things. You have a risk, needs, and what we would call responsivity, which is where barriers live under. Risks are the things that the individual is going to do or engage in um, or be exposed to that make it likely he will make a bad decision. Mm -hmm. Needs are, well, you know, housing, food, shelter, education, employment. Mm -hmm. The responsivity takes into account the barriers to getting your needs met. Yep. And the barriers that help you make different decisions, right? So uh, part of what was happening is that the risk level of someone coming out of prison to determine if you're medium or if you're low, medium, or high risk was a subjective assessment, meaning that it depended on who was doing your interview. So I learned, and I, I spent most of my career before life after hate training law enforcement probation and parole and social workers believe it, other mental health how not to hate the population they serve right because there's a lot of hatred there it's a lot of anger and frustration and authoritative uh, authoritative approaches right like we have to say hey you you, you are 
a part of the bad attitude of this entire system, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if your clients can have bad attitudes, so can your employees, so can your administrator, right? And so we need to address the bad attitudes in this office. And so we need to take away subjectivity of determining risk level. And when we did that, that change alone led to sweeping changes and differences in the outcomes of assessments and violations, future violations, right? Yep. Um, and so by changing the attitude of the persons in power, we lowered recidivism. Now, I worked with high-risk offenders, and it turned out that the vast majority of the high-risk offenders that I worked with were um, the highest of the high-risk, right? So of the high-risk, they were at the top 10%. We operated at a recidivism rate of 3 or 6% for years 1, 2, and 3 with high-risk offenders, and we reduced the sex offender uh, recidivism rate by 76%, right? That's fantastic. And that was, that, was, that was interesting in a sense, like many of the same principles of client, direct client services, um, I'm implementing through Life After Hate right now, but what the other half of that story is the changes that we made to the system. Yeah. We made, we standardized the assessments for risk, we put in some barriers to make it less likely that you would go to prison, back to prison for low level rule violations. Mm -hmm. That treatment was an intimate part of your, uh, of your plan from pro uh, probation and parole. And that we actually had done the work with the community to make the community more open to allowing these men and women to come back into the community. So we put, we put uh, uh, incentives in place for employers to hire our people. Perfect. Uh, we, we brought, you know, the local colleges and renters, like the Renters Association, into our, um, into our committees mm -hmm. so that they could learn from us and hear why it's important to give a person a chance. Because think about what happens. Here's, a, here's an interesting case. And we're seeing this mirrored in another ways in, in with white supremacy. Sex offenders in Milwaukee were zoned, right? The, the city passed zoning laws or rules of where a sex offender could live. The heat map for these zones basically left two places in the entire city of Milwaukee where a sex offender could parole to. Both of them were bridges. Mm -hmm. These men were, were paroled into homelessness and put under a bridge wow. and were not allowed to live anywhere else. Then to get in, now, so that's bad enough right there. But then to get in a job, to get an employment, to get employment, here's what you have to do. Your, your probation and parole rules um, tell you that you have to do this. You have to inform your employer that you're a sex offender on the first, on the very first interview. Mm -hmm. If you can make it past that, you then have to ask your potential employer to meet with your supervisor because your supervisor is going to tell them, inform them of, ensure that the restrictions that they have, and many of these where uh, restrictions like can have, cannot be alone with a vulnerable person at all. Um, so imagine like uh, working in a fast food restaurant. It, it's, you're just not, it was a sweeping, these were sweeping rules that basically canceled just about any type of employment that you can have. Um, <clears throat> then if you make it past that and the employer still gives you a job, the supervisor still has the right to deny you the employment. Mm -hmm. And so we were seeing those three things play out. Yeah. Now, what do you think that does to a person who's already in homelessness, paroled into homelessness? Now you are restricting employment. 
but yeah. they have to pay for fees. They have to eat, mm -hmm. clothe. Mm -hmm. That those things increase the likelihood of recidivism, yeah. right? And so, what we're seeing on this side is a similar component where we're naming, we're naming, shaming these men and women publicly. Mm -hmm. We get them fired from their jobs. We get them moved out of their homes, and we push them out into wherever they go. That oftentimes has the, the exact opposite effect that you want it to have. Yeah. It, it deepens the relationship with the hatred. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and it doesn't leave them any, any choices. Um, you know, I, I, when we talked about homelessness in the previous podcast, and I described an experience I had with a homeless man and his son in Chicago on the downtown streets of Chicago. And, you know, you realize what access to opportunities what the differences are in the access to opportunities, not only if you are born and raised and grown up in, in a poverty and environment where there are gangs and all of that, and that becomes kind of your conditioning, but then when you have a lack of access and certainly lower access to real job opportunities, um, then you don't have a whole lot of options and that increases all of the, the animosity and the blame and the hatred and the us and them. And, you know, you have us and them with the white supremacists and people of color, but you also have us and them with, as you described, the uh, the jail, the corrections department, and the, the entire you know prison population. This is why it's important not to not to boil it down to personal choice alone. Yeah, absolutely. No. When you don't, when you when you don't have a community or systems in place that um, facilitate that choice and support them but work against it, yep. then you can expect to see, right? And so, and what, what, what some of your listeners might think is, well, they shouldn't have committed a crime then. Uh, that's... Yeah. Right, but, and, and let's say People that, that say perspective that. is valid. Let's say it that is. perspective is valid. Yeah. Well, then the perspective that the community won't accept me back is also valid, mm -hmm. right? And, it, and so if you hold your righteous position, yeah. both sides have no reason to bend. Mm -hmm. or to reach that's where reconciliation has to occur yeah and for reconciliation to occur you have to have acknowledgement of the problem so on my end as the offender i have to acknowledge the problem but on, on the other end where and this is a bitter pill to swallow when you haven't committed a crime but yet you hold the kind of standard that is unforgiving yeah right that unforgiving nature pits you against the very thing you want, which is more safety, yeah. which is which is more uh, freedom from you know X, Y, and Z, right? So, without that reconciling happening, it, and you, which means that you have you can't you're not willing to have dialogue, you're not willing to make uh, some sort of uh, path for a person, right? You're going to make it against all odds, or you're going to make it in prison. I mean, that's a setup for failure on both sides and, mm -hmm. and it taxes the community. I mean, there are business case reasons you can make why a person might want to be more welcoming to somebody coming back. And oftentimes we have to attach it to the bottom, to the bottom dollar, right? Like the, yeah. the bottom line is economics. The bottom line is neighborhood safety. You know, when you can convert someone into uh, a, a neighbor, not just an ex-con, when you can convert someone into... Uh, a student, not just uh, an addict, right? When you can see beyond the behavior 
mm-hmm. beyond the problems and you can get to the person. Well, then that allows both sides to humanize each other. Exactly. But now my comment about making a different choice, don't you think that people have to choose to want to be open-minded? Not certainly choose to have, you know, make all these great decisions without the support. I totally agree with you on that. But how difficult is it to try to pull somebody into a reconciliation and compassionate viewpoint if they don't want to be there? They want to stew and, and sit around and in that cesspool of hate and anger. That's a very interesting thing. And again, and talking about choice, talking about the blame game, which oftentimes the blame game has valid points by the person blaming, right? Yeah. So they have valid points. That's where, mm-hmm. that's where we have to listen to grievances, whether we agree with them or not. Right. We have to listen to them because there's always some sort of element of truth to it that there's, I think bent out of shape at some Absolutely. Point. There's truth on all sides. But the other part, the other third, and these are all things I've addressed in different aspects of my job. The other, the other judgment that comes out is that a person has to want it. That, is, that, would, that would mean that the word intervention doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? Interventions are for people who are not contemplating change. Mm-hmm. But at the end of that intervention would be contemplating change. And had that intervention not occurred, it is likely that person would have never changed, right? Yeah. So, so can you have an intervention with, with people of hate? Well, there's a case in Gainesville. When I first yeah. became the, um, uh, the executive director, it made national news, and uh, it, it, was a pretty, it was a pretty interesting thing. And we share similar stories as the one I'm going to share with you. This, this white supremacist in his white T-shirt with swastikas all over it, his red suspenders, shaved head, his boots and braces, as they say, went, drove, he was a very poor guy, right? And he took his last dollars, put them in the tank and drove like an hour to Gainesville to go hear uh, a, a, a popular rising white supremacist speak at a, at a college in Gainesville. He gets there late. And so he, all the white supremacists are already inside the building. The police are still there guarding the building. This guy is the only white guy there and the only white guy in a Nazi outfit, right? And totally announcing his presence. And he, and he was blocked from getting to the building. And so he took it upon himself to march through that angry, raging crowd. He starts walking through it and immediately is assaulted. He is beaten. He is stabbed. Like he said, people were sticking him with sharp things in his, in his, legs and in his arms like to prevent him from walking spinning on him punching him in the face and that guy he never bothered to defend himself he kept his hands down by his side kept his chin up was taking the blows and kept marching towards that building eventually somebody in the crowd a young man in the crowd took pity on him grabbed him and and hugged him and and others started to try to protect him from the crowd Mm -hmm. that was trying to get at him right and then while he was hugging him and trying to protect him, he was like whispering or commenting this guy's ears. And one of the questions the guy remembered hearing was like, why do you hate me? Yeah, yeah. I had that same experience, right? I did, yeah. And then, the, and then that guy says, why do you hate me? And he's like, I don't know. Boom, like an yeah. epiphany. I don't know. Yeah. That guy walked out of that rally with another black guy. That, that white supremacist left that rally with the, with the black guy. They had coffee, and that guy has since disengaged and is now going through a de-radicalization process. Here's a guy who was on his way to 
um, a white supremacy rally, no conscious thought or consideration of changing. There was an intervention. And the similarity of that, of that thing that happened to him is, is within my story, mm-hmm. is within the vast majority of formers. It was somebody who did not fit the mold of the global narrative that I had been given to follow. Yeah. The right? intervention of co- compassion and, you know, legitimate interest in, in questioning. You know, that's what it sounds like. And connecting at the humanitarian yeah. level. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, I don't like you and I don't really like what you're wearing and I don't like what you represent, but I can look past that enough to see that the person inside of you deserves protection. I love that. Intervention through compassion. It's, it's the only thing that works. And see, you see how we've overcome three n- n- normal thoughts that are really rooted in judgment. Here's, here's, here's how subtle judgment can be. Have any of your listeners ever told someone, I'm proud of you, as a way of saying, you know, good job, like you did it, like I'm so proud of you, right? What I've learned in my practice is that is a, that is a judgment-laden statement. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's so subtle mm-hmm. that, you know, our, it's not our intention, but it, the implications are there. Yeah. No, I because agree with the, that one. The other side of it is that I could, I could not be proud of you, yeah. right? And so yeah. I've changed that statement to, you should be so proud of yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you can, you, you know, you, you should recognize, because again, who, to be honest, just straightforward, who, who, who the hell am I? Yeah. Evaluating your worthiness, yeah. you know, and it's not like that's what we intended, right? Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's the feeling that gets implied. So when we, even when we're trying to teach others and we say, you know, it comes down to their choices, not always, sometimes it's our choices that impact their choices. And the blame game, it's, it's, not, it's not like some of the things they have to say that they're upset about aren't true. Some of the things yeah. they are upset about aren't true. And yeah. now this idea that you have to want to change, it, it can make things a lot easier if they want to. But I have helped people get from, F this, I don't want to be here, to can I get my next appointment? I can't wait to see you again. Or years later, you saved my life. Thank you. Right? Like, it's when we start to recognize that, as a society, we play a significant role in the healing of this country and mm-hmm. the, the, the desire to be um, reintegrated and reconciled with our communities. You know, it's, it's a tough sell because victim, these, these communities feel like victims. And we're not talking about direct victims. We're just talking about communities that feel like they've been victimized, but maybe not the direct person of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to tell somebody who feels like a victim that, we have to make this better between everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there are, you know, through the Forgiveness Project, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, they're based in the UK. There are stories of, uh, of people, victims, now working with their perpetrators to mm-hmm. heal, mm-hmm. to heal the wounds, to heal the communities. Joe Barry working with the man who used an IRA bomb to kill her father. Yeah. Uh, Jill Hicks, you know, now on the path to uh, spreading messages of change. Um, you know, people started, you know, uh, Jen Foree walked into a prison to the man who killed her daughter and, and got him to leave the hate group that he was in and now work together. Like it's, it's, it's not something that we would tell a victim, like you have to do this. But what we're saying is as, as a community who feels like they've been done wrong by crime, by hate, whatever it may be, at some point, we hope that they recognize that being a part of the solution 
can speed up the process towards reconciliation. Yeah. You know, the Israelis and the Palestinians, they have groups that are doing similar, similar things. Bobby Domlin is my friend, right? Like she started the parent circle, right? Like yeah. she, 900, she's taken on 900 years of, of a war. And she said, I realized that moms and dads on both sides of this line were losing their children. Enough's yeah. enough. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, in my own personal philosophy about how people move into a different thought process and different behaviors is not necessarily an intellectual choice, but a, um, an opportunity for their higher and best self <clears throat> to be in the foreground instead of their egoic thoughts and their egoic behaviors and the egoic knee-jerk reactions. And to be honest, what you're talking about is really how that happens is because when you are exhibiting a compassionate and loving energy and demeanor towards somebody else that naturally has a tendency to pull that side of somebody else out as well to meet it. And instead of the, um, you know, I have this little um, device here, I'll show it to you. It's the, um, um, the Newton's cradle of balls that I use in my, in my own teaching, you know, is it's, it's this, right? We've all seen this. We all understand that that principle with well, that energetic principle works with people too. If you're going to give them hate, they're going to give you hate right back. But if you're going to give them love and compassion, the chances are you might actually pull that back out of them. Now, is there, you know, there may be some times where that egoic, you know, and intensity and that hatred is so entrenched, it may take a little bit of chipping away to get to it. And, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, some examples and circumstances that you've experienced where, um, you may not have been so easy in the beginning, but, but somehow you were able to chip away and with continual compassion and love, you were able to pull that better side out of somebody. You know, I remember, you know, when I first got into the field, I was really heavy handed, but that was kind of like the, that was kind of like the approach by the field at that time, right? It was like big sticks, you know, carrots and big sticks, right? Carrots at the end of the stick or we hit you with the stick, right? And so I had that approach. And then I remember when I walked into the clinic, uh, this other clinic after I got my master's degree, my reputation preceded me for being heavy handed. And, and uh, my boss literally told me uh, after she gave me the job and she, she, she said, Sammy, I got one more thing to say, you know, okay. She's like, none of that confrontation bullshit here. Either. <laughs> right. And I'm like, Okay, but by then I had learned a whole bunch of sets of skills were kind of like what led me to where the kind of person I am today with my counseling. Um, and I'm like, okay. And what I learned from there was that of all the people I've discharged from program uh, because they were non-compliant. And I want to tell you like my bosses and their POs heard my version of the interpretation of the interaction when I signed my name, they all signed their name too. So they reinforced my approach to what I was seeing. At this clinic, I was working with some of the exact same men I had discharged in another program and, and certainly the same population. And my discharge rate dropped to almost nothing. And then when I went to, to run that reentry program, I looked at our policies and procedures and I read into anything that had to do with a termination as a result of conduct, 
So I, I, I eliminated rules like, uh, like if you don't, you know, if you don't show up for your appointments, you're discharged. If you show up with dirty UAs, you're discharged. If you're disrespectful to staff, you're discharged. Whatever it may be, right? Like you, all the reasons for disciplinary action. I took all of that away. I took a mandated program and made it a voluntary program. Um, I took all the penalty, all the penalties of being in our space out. And everyone thought I was crazy. I even had to let someone go because they couldn't get on board, right? They're like, well, how about you be the good cop and, and I'll be the bad? I'm like, I don't need bad cop. There's enough of that, yeah. right? Our, our retention rate jumped from 60% to almost 90%. Fantastic. Our, our, again, I never discharged a person in three years. Remember, we're talking about high-risk offenders. Never discharged a person for violating a rule. That's why you're here. That's the purpose. Like, we need to dive into that. We need to understand why you can't come, why you're still getting high, why you're still hanging out with your old associates. Like, it's, it does no one any good. My, it was my ego. It was my... It was my resistance to their resistance mm -hmm. that created the barrier to change. And once I was able to overcome that, I created a safe space in which learning could take place. And until then, learning probably couldn't take place until I was able to remove that parts of my ego out of our policies. I trained all of the staff to be kind and courteous regardless you know, it's not your job to tell them, oh, you missed your last appointment. Let me handle that. I just want you to be so happy to see them, like to welcome them here. Mm -hmm. right? If somebody hasn't been back in three months, God, I'm just glad you're here. How have you been? Tell me what's going on. Rather than, hey, man, you know, you're on the verge of getting kicked out. Yeah, exactly. it changes the whole dynamic for people, man. Yeah. And, and so that, those are the types of things that I think to your question is like we're we're trying to help communities overcome their biases mm -hmm. about a person's ability to respond to something. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it, it's, it, we're not saying that these men and women haven't done things mm -hmm. uh, that we shouldn't be worried, concerned, or even hold them accountable for. Right. But how we do the accountability piece will make a significant impact in the outcomes. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're trying to teach people that it actually could be safer for all of us if we took a different approach in how we address this idea of change. Yeah, you can right. have your neck figuratively on somebody's neck as well as physically. And, um, you know, and that's, I think, so difficult for people to see their own figurative knee on somebody's neck because of their own, you know, bias expectations and, and judgments, which you know, comes from our own conditioning and our own egoic storylines about ourselves, others, and, and life. And, um, you know, I think that's what I'm hoping a lot of our current environment will lead people to go, not, not for, you know, a bunch of proselytizing white people sitting up and, you know, that's not, I think, terribly helpful. Um, but, you know, the, <clears throat> there's a, um, of a violence philosopher um, and theory uh, theorist named Gautung, who describes cultural violence leads to the institutional violence, which then often produces when it goes on for so long, the actual physical direct violence. And until we actually go in and see how we are culturally, mentally, um, 
you know, biased, discriminatory, and, you know, the kind of violence that we, we project onto others then, and then put into the institutions where we then are, have that bias, um, you know, it, it won't change. And so it's, um, we've got to start at the beginning. How we've contributed to it, you know, by our stances, by our policies, you know, it's, discharging somebody for bad behavior seems like the right thing to do until you look at the outcomes that once you discharge someone from a program like mine, they go to go to prison. Mm -hmm. Now that, that, that ensures a couple of things that ensures that your budget just, just expanded because now it's more expensive to put that person in prison for that. And we're not talking about for, uh, like no brainers, right? There, I think there are some. There are some charges that there's. It's a no brainer, but somebody who's struggling to keep their appointments, somebody who's struggling to even stop using substances, someone who is struggling to, you know, whatever it may be. And we're not talking about violent offenses, right? Oftentimes, if we were able to have a better understanding of what is behind this dynamic. But what we do is we get caught up in judging the behavior instead of trying to understand the behavior. And I'm saying that I think there's a strong business case to be had about why we need to understand what motivates behavior versus then simply judging it. I'm all about accountability. So I'm not saying this should be an accountability free zone. I'm saying though, when we understand what we're dealing with, we can come up with the things that can be more effective. And sometimes that ends up coming right back to me and saying, well, you know, if I had, a, you know, instead of thinking someone's lying to me, I could think that more work needs to be done on the relationship so this person can be, feel comfortable being honest with me. Whoa, you know, yeah. like it's, but, but then people say, but why do I got to do that? Well, because we're interested in the most positive outcome possible here. Yeah. Right. We can't put it all on the person. Um, completely to do it alone and then expect them to just know yeah it's just it's just not possible well and it's like you described earlier if you've experienced a certain number of circumstances where somebody has treated you in a certain way and you've seen them treat other people the same way they're going to expect you or, or you know somebody else to continue to treat them in that way and so that's an expectation that's a lens that you've put in your eyes and you know like if I put a yellow one in my eyes I will see the sky is green and if you've put a red one in your eyes, you're going to see the sky is purple. And yet we can't see the edges of our lenses. So I'm going to insist that the sky is green. You're going to insist that the sky is purple. And until we actually, you know, start looking at our own selves, we're, we're not going to see the fact that we each have our biases and our perspectives condition stories. And that's what I think, you know, we're asking people to do these days is to really take a look at what are your own stories that you put in your own eyes about who others are, who you are, and how life is. And I think that there, the way we can introduce people to a, a different perspective is by first validating the one they have, yeah. right? And saying, oh, I, I can see that, or I think I understand how you got to that, right? Mm-hmm. Because with... What, what I think we, we struggle with is listening. Yeah. Listening is seen as a form of concession, right? Like we're conceding something because we listen. Because you'll notice that that's why people don't listen. They just argue in their points because they feel that they pause long enough to let the other person get a word in edgewise that somehow they've been checkmated or they've, they've lost a certain amount of pos- uh, footing or positioning. 
And listening really doesn't mean or imply that you're conceding. But on the other hand, our typical response to not listening is then in the same space where we could have been listening, we start condemning, right? And so now I need to put your point down as much as possible. But again, there's no listening, so it doesn't matter what I'm doing, it's not getting through. And normally we don't yell because we don't think they can hear us. We yell because we think there's too much distance between us. And listening is the only way where we can close the gap, right, of, of the distance. And, and most, the people who have listened to me never made me feel like they were co-signing my distorted thinking. What it did do was create the environment that made me feel safe enough to feel like they were a safe person, mm -hmm. right? Because it was unique. Being listened to was such an extraordinary experience for me that it broke through all my global narratives beyond my, my best attempts to not let it in. Yeah. You know, like I, I didn't want to receive your message, but because of the way you did it and sometimes listening was the message. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because they've probably never been listened to before. And that, that sets you apart from everyone else in the room. You know, Sammy, I, I just wrote down what you said, that listening is the only way we can close the gap. And if you don't mind, I'm going to use that and give you full credit as quotation, because I think that is an, an incredible message. And um, I, I couldn't support it more, but I think that that is a, you know, kind of a mind blow of, you know, we don't close the gap by trying to convince people to our view. We help them, you know, we, we listen and understand. And I think that is, is fantastic. Um, so when as you, we... When you do that, when you, when you listen, it starts to break apart like some of the, the defenses that are in the front of the mind for this person. But when you do that, you gain the credibility that you want to have when you're yelling but don't have you gain the credibility of being listened to in return, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? But you have to have credibleness with me in order for me to be willing to listen to you. Mm -hmm. And so when I choose to, you know, to, you know, listen first, at some point that person is going to give me the permission I need to make a difference in their lives by giving me permission to speak. And when I, when I come from a place of, of like skilled, empathic, you know, genuine listening, I'm going to, I've already validated them as a person. I do want to spend a little bit of time validating, you know, their perspective. Like, man, that's, that's what you just described as tough. Like I couldn't imagine, you know, like somehow you're just, you're validating them. But then at that point, that person, you will have built enough of a relationship with that person mm -hmm. where they're finally going to want to hear from you. Yeah. And until yeah. they want to hear from you, good luck, right? But yeah. the, that's the way in. And when you, you started off your introduction to me with ego, we don't listen. And it's not because we have big egos. It's because we have tiny, fragile ones, right? Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't take much to knock it over and set you off, right, to this yeah. battle, right? The, the bigger the ego is, the better, because it has tolerance. It has the ability to absorb the confrontation without getting lost in it. It's when it's fragile and doesn't have the, the solid foundation underneath it that it becomes easily triggered. It's, you have to raise your tolerance, you know, for being challenged and for resistance 
so that it doesn't bother you when someone doesn't listen to you. Yeah. Right? yeah. When they don't hear you. And the, the first guy that helped me change, it was a solid two years later before I felt that I was going to change. And, you know, that's a very, very interesting and important point to make that just because it doesn't happen the first time you try it doesn't mean that they're an impenetrable cement block that can't be, you know, heard from or, or gotten to and, and softened and whatever, you know, label you want to, you want to call it. Um, and the two years, that's, that's a very important message to, to communicate that don't give up, just keep being the compassionate and attentive and listening person. And you could. And then when I finally, you know, I used to tell my story that there was never anyone there for me, but when I got my life together and I healed, I went back in my memory and I could see a handful of people that had tried to be there for me. I just wasn't in a place to receive their message at the time, you yeah. know? And so I became grateful for people who I had once looked past, like they were just a part of the system or part of the past. But in every stage of my life, there were kind people trying to be kind to me, but I couldn't put my guard down for whatever reason. Um, you know, and so I realized like there were people who did make an impact who I wish if they heard me today would realize they, they made an impact even though they didn't get to see it. Yeah. You know, and that, and that sort of goes back to a little bit about what I meant about being ready um, and, and having some of the, the, I guess, choice was maybe not the best word to use, for, but, but having that, that, that point that you say, okay, I'm going to do this a little differently now. And can you identify, was there a single point that it finally hit for you or was it just a gradual chipping away? It appears like it's a point, but it really is a constellation a collision of constellations, I would say, right? They come together finally. Like, it's like all the pieces finally come together, right? It's a random act, but the, the random, it seems random, but there is someone or something facilitating the, the final, you know, accumulation of these moments that make sense. It's like all the parts finally fit together. There, there was, um, I was, I was not considering change when I changed. I was, I was, uh, I was battling change and I it, in my book it's pretty high well highlighted like how I was in a treatment program forced treatment program and I was basically getting away with murder in there I don't know maybe they took it as a personal mission to get to me but people were getting kicked out for much less than all the things I was doing like I was really aggressive very violent and threatening people could sleep in past their their wake-up time and get discharged right I was I don't understand I'm just grateful <laughs> but on, on about the 90th day of my treatment, my, my counselor, uh, he was a psychiatrist, psychologist, he, he had, the group, the inmates could um, confront you, like they could yell at you and scream at you, you know, and, and that was their therapeutic approach, right? Like they would challenge you on anything you said or did. Well, it wasn't going so well on this day, and this guy, I had just threatened an inmate. I had just, this inmate had, had questioned my ability to love my own children based on my behavior and i and i was like you know let me catch you outside and then we can finish this discussion right and um the so the social worker jumped in and he said we're gonna switch gears and uh he said tell me about your mom you know tell me about your mom and i'm and i you know 
thinking I was concealing it. <laughs> I was like, they ain't shit to talk about my mom. You know, like, just my answer alone wasn't enough to let somebody know there's issues, right? And so he pushed and pushed and pushed. And he got me to talk about my mom. And within moments of actually getting into her story about me, I was crying. I was almost 30 years old. I hadn't talked about, I had, I had made a conscious decision to never talk about my mom prior around the age of 11 or 12. Um, I had blocked her out of my mind. And I was crying and I probably went on for about a half hour, if not longer, about my list of grievances of, of how she treated me my whole life, which was pretty severe. My mom was very violent with me and, uh, and allowed her brother to sexually assault me and my sister for years. Um, so I had some, I had some pretty serious deep seated grievances. Now he gets me to talk about this and I'm, by the time I'm done laying out my laundry list of complaints about my mother, I'm a mess. Like I, I am crying hard. I'm, uh, it's an ugly cry too. Tears and snot and, you know, it was bad. I was a blubbering idiot, man. And, uh, he, he says, this is where I, most of my perspectives come from. The first thing he did was acknowledge my story, which was a first in my 30 years of life. Everyone else had something to say about my story that would discredit it or minimize it in some way. He acknowledged it. He said, I can see your suffering. Yeah, acknowledge your trauma. That was the first time anyone had that. And I'm gonna tell you, that brought on a whole nother wave of tears. Mm -hmm. a different type of tears. Mm -hmm. And then he says, I have to ask you a couple of questions, Sammy, you know? And at this point I was totally defenseless. Like I couldn't, I don't think I could, uh, I don't think there was anything I could do. I, I was so drained from getting her story out. He said, have you ever treated anyone the way your mom treated you? And I, I would normally have been defended against that. Mm -hmm. but the answer was genuine. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I immediately knew when he asked that not only had I done that, I had done worse. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, the way I was looking at myself, I had done worse than what she had done to me. And then he said, had you ever done anything to your kids like your mother did to you? Now I've been in prison their whole life. So I could have said, well, I've never beaten my kids. Well, I haven't been in their lives to beat them, you know? But I recognized that maybe the most pervasive failure I felt my mom had was the abandonment. Mm -hmm. She was not there to protect me. Um, and she never came to look for me. And so I recognized I had that in common. And I realized how deep of a wound that caused on me and immediately realized I, had must, I must have caused a wound on my children this way. And so I said yes again. And it was in those moments where my tears went from grieving to like recognizing the depths of my wrongs. So now I'm crying for my victims. Cause I, I it was like this, it's the story I had told completely fell apart and I was only able to see the truth of the matter at this point. And I saw all of my children suffering, my brother, my siblings who had suffered, you know, my, my choices. And then it was amazing because I didn't know how to take it at first. I, I started to dismantle the hatred I had towards enemies. Mm. It was all like a wave. I was like, immediate. it was like, 
wherever the mud stuck, the water was cleansing it off, and I was able to see what was underneath there. I realized just how far my wrongs went. And it was in that moment, and all of this happened within moments. Yeah. It was in, within that moment, I heard in my head, I was going to change. Like, I have to get, I have to get this together to get back as soon as possible. Now I had, a, I could do all the time in the world, but now I had a sense of urgency to get back home, mm. to, to do right, to do what was right, um, to make amends, to start undoing the damn, like it was just such a, and I still have that same level of urgency um, today, but it hasn't faded. It's carried me a long, long way, but it, it was in those moments, those questions. And, and here's what I think is the genius one for the first time, he helped me identify with, the main person that was an antagonist in my life. I was now was not like she was different for me. I could see. And when I wanted, I knew I wanted to be understood. I know she had a story similar to mine. So why not understand her story in the same way? Um, it didn't make everything okay. You know, I forgave her immediately mm -hmm. in that moment, but it didn't mean there was trust. Yeah. Um, but I, it took a lot longer to get to forgiving myself. It took years later, but it, it was in that moment when I realized I was wrong. I had abandoned my children. I had become worse than the person I was angry at. The person I was angry at had a story like I had a story. How I didn't think I would ever be able to be in a position. The thing that allowed it to happen was the listening. Mm -hmm. He did a great job of listening. Step two was validating. Mm -hmm. And then because he did that, I was open to hearing anything he had to say. He could have told me the sky was falling. I would have believed him at that point. Like, it was, I was just blind. It was just a blind relationship with no boundaries at this point. Like I was, it was no longer him against me. He had, he had proven himself in that moment to be somebody I could trust and connect to. What you said there, I think is absolutely the key. Once you, somebody listens to you and validates you, the reason that you're open now is because it's no longer him against me. And you know, that, that right there is, is the, the, the sum, it seems like, you know, because like you had said earlier when we were in the very beginning that if you weren't with me, you were therefore against me. And you know, that just, I think that's a perfect explanation and uh, of how all of this works within our own minds and, and, and all of this. So that's, I think that's a beautiful place for us to come to an end of, of our podcast. And, and Sammy, it has been a true pleasure to hear your experiences, your perspectives, um, and, and the stories of people that you work with, yourself, and all that you're trying to do for this population that you used to be part of, and how you can come together with those that you originally thought were the enemy. Um, it's, it's a wonderful lesson and illustration of how we can all get to the same place at some point or another. And so how can people support you, support Life After Hate? How can people, what would you like for, to leave with people? Well, you know, I think it's important. We put out a lot of content to help challenge what, you know, some of the effects of social media and other types of media, you know, like one of our last articles was around like how, like how to navigate through fake news, this fake news era that we're in. 
and people have really consumed that. I, I think it's important, one, uh, even if you can't like financially support us, sign up for the newsletter because we're, we're not just putting out a newsletter, we're putting out content that is in, informational mm-hmm. and often leads to deeper insights around current events, like what we're seeing with COVID mm-hmm. uh, and, and how, it, how it relates to what we're, what we're fighting right now, the, the current political, national, international events that are occurring right now. We try to bring a, a narrative to those spaces that helps give people a bounce. Cause like we said, everyone is going down this rabbit hole of very limited information. We're like on the, we're on the outside of that current and we're, we're providing some of the balance. We're helping restore the balance to perspectives mm-hmm. because it can be really tempting and, and very subtle to get dragged down these paths of, of how to see or perceive these things. You know, um, I think one is signing up for that newsletter because it's the information in there is not where you're not going to get that from anywhere else. Well, our perspectives are very unique, especially around the space that we're working in. And we also talk about some of the risks that are out there that most people don't know. And we feel like that type of information can help people be aware, you know, what's out there when they see it and what to do with it when they see it. But I also think like with COVID and all of this other stuff, like you can imagine where people are, kind of being distracted and looking at other things. But we're, the threat that we're facing down right now is still very, very much alive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, COVID-19 has, has moved dollars to that. These political uh, events, and while it's important to amplify the voices that finally have a stage to be heard, behind the scenes, we're a civil rights organization, still doing that work very quietly to prevent the next mass atrocity to, to get that person out who might commit the next hate crime uh, it is important that we have that support and we've we have stayed alive and grown because of grassroots support like uh, we're not we're not heavily funded by uh you know by grants right now we're most of our funding for the last couple of years has been community recognizing that the work we're doing is making a difference and they get behind us so spread the word man and if nothing else let people know that we're out here mm-hmm. um and we're you know we put our pants on the same way as everyone else we're actually a small organization but we're making a big impact yeah yeah i've uh, i read on your website um you have helped just 360 over 360 people just since um charlottesville but i think you've got some um some more bigger numbers than that as a a, a general overarching they are growing and they do mimic like crisis. So we will always see a rise after a rise in requests for help after an event, mm-hmm. uh, some sort of event. So like these protests, the killings, the mass shootings, it doesn't matter where they're at. You know, we're, we're playing both on a national and international scale. We're influencing the way people are approaching this space. We're informing communities about this space because we feel that that type of knowledge is powerful in the right hands. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time training mental health providers so that they can help us provide the services that we need, training law enforcement, you know, and, and right now with all the cries for police reform and police defunding, it's, it's important to recognize that police defunding doesn't necessarily mean we're going to zero out police stations. It means that um, we need to redirect that money somewhere useful. And for years now, we have been recruiting like-minded police officers, both at the federal and state level, 
to get on board with our approach, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and that is, that is critical. That, that's some of the work that we have been doing that is now being nationally cried for. Yeah. Right? Like, and it's not just reform. We're not just looking at changing one person. We're trying to change, have influence system. in the system. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. What you had described about the corrections officers and the, the prison guards having such a clearly systemized um, bias, what I'm sure is surprising to, to a lot of people. Um, I notice on your website that you've got not only an option to donate, but also an option, option to volunteer where you've got options for people to contribute technical mental health support, fundraising, development, and administrative types of, um, of work. Is that we, still... Yeah, we still, you know, it's been kind of crazy because we have probably more requests for help, you know, than that come from all different kinds of places. And we're often looking at like trying to figure out where it would fit because we've grown. We've gone from one part-time person to I have a staff of 12 now. Wow, um, great. You know, and uh, we, are, we are growing all the time and we do. And we like what we, when people come to us asking because one, it's an opportunity to educate and to be educated. Two, we get to we get to show people the approach because we make everyone go through this training that everyone gets. Like here's here's what you're seeing and here's how we approach what you're seeing, right? And then those people get the benefit of learning some skill sets that aren't very common, but we want to be common one day. Yes. Right? We want those skill sets to be common, but we know that it's so rare that anytime we have the opportunity to train people in this, we know that we're doing the good work. So of course send us your request for volunteer angela who is my programs director she is she is a, a blessing that's who normally deals with that and helps figure out where people land and what we can do with them so unfortunately we do get so many requests it's like we might have 30 requests for social workers and 200 requests for it we can't use them all but we we always try to figure out like how like is there a way like how can we get them and even just being able to have people on on call, like when we have questions around their expertise, it's, we will find a way. We will find Excellent. a way. Well, great. Well, Sammy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the website for Life After Hate is uh, lifeafterhate.org. And there's so much information on this website about the organization, about various people that are part of the organization, a little bit about their histories, some of the videos that they've described, some of their background and um, what they're doing to help others move and liberate themselves from hate and hate groups. So uh, Sammy Rangel, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a fantastic episode. And I hope everybody listening enjoyed it and goes to Life After Hate to help Sammy and others really support this, this movement because it's, it's a wonderful one. So thank you for joining us on uh, Building a World of Encounter, Not Confrontation. And uh, hopefully everybody will participate in our next episode as well. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.